It is good to hear that music again. You didn't think this was going to happen. I wasn't sure it was going to happen, but we are back with Fails and Fixins. Welcome. In this episode, we are going to take a look at a product that did not live up to the promises of its promotional campaign. In fact, the product was so bad, the Simpsons ended up making a parody of it in their second season. What was that product? What was the campaign? Well, you're going to have to stick around to find out. started i really want to thank you all for sticking around we have had so many downloads in our hardcore history-esque absence we've been gone for two years we're coming to you live from a brand new digital buzz studios and in this episode we're going to talk about something that was once parodied by the simpsons so you know it's good if you don't know the simpsons there is an episode early on in the run where homer discovers he has a long lost brother And that brother is a Henry Ford-esque figure. He owns a car company, and they make and distribute American cars. And he gives Homer, his long-lost brother that he is happy to have and happy to find, he gives him a chance to design a car. And what Homer designs is not great. It cost him a fortune, and it cost him his company. So what we're looking at today is an instance where that nearly happened to a major American brand. A major American brand that you know and maybe even you drive. And that would be Ford. You see, way, way back at the end of the 1930s and the beginning of 1940s, Ford hadn't created a new vehicle brand for a while, about 19 years, actually. And so they wanted to expand their market share. Part of the reason they wanted to expand their market share is because GM had started to take a nice little bite out of it. So Ford got together a group of people they called the Whiz Kids. I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about who they were or exactly what they did in the group but I will tell you to go look them up. This was a very important group of influential and soon to be very influential people that they got together. And one of the things they needed to do instead of planning a car was pick out a name. And to pick out a name and to know what kind of car people would want, they conducted what was known as motivational research. Now what I'm about to tell you comes courtesy of the Washington Post. And they said that David Wallace, who was Ford's director of planning at that time, had hired Columbia University's Bureau of Applied Social Research to get an idea of what made customers tick. And they went out and they interviewed 800 people, which isn't a ton, but it's enough to get an idea. They asked those people about their preferences in everything from cars to alcohol. They then produced a report which they believed would reveal the hidden meaning of cars. For instance, they came to the conclusion that Ford symbolized rugged masculinity. They decided that Buick symbolized upper-class solidarity. And Plymouth, well, they had kind of a weak image of playing responsibility. So that was some of their research. Another thing, when you're making a car, what you need is a name. And they came up with names. Boy, did they ever come up with names. They came up with over 10,000 names. In fact, they came up with so many names and we're working so hard to figure this thing out, that David Wallace wrote to Marianna Moore, who at the time was America's most famous female poet, and he asked her for naming advice. A couple weeks later, he sent her some roses and thanked her for her time before not naming it the Intelligent Whale, which was one of the many, many names she suggested. So they take it to committee, and they can't decide on anything. You know, there's that old saying 
that a camel is a horse built by committee. Now, it's supposed to symbolize that if you have too many people working on a project, too many minds, too many cooks in the kitchen, things don't come out quite right. And that's kind of what happened here with the Ford Edsel. You see, they ended up not being able to decide on any of the names. Everyone disliked all of the names, and it led to debate, lots of closed-door meetings, lots of storm-outs. So instead, they went with a name that everyone hated the least, and that was the Edsel. It's named after Henry Ford's son, and they actually gave this thing its own division in the company. And Ford ended up spending 10 years and $250 million in planning. The idea was that this Edsel was going to fit somewhere in their product line between the Ford and their Mercury lines. Once you've spent that type of dough and that much time working on something, you need a good way to communicate what the product is, to let the world know. And Ford hired Manhattan's Foot, Cone, and Belding Marketing Company to create a campaign for this. One of the strategies they decided on was a two-year leak campaign. And by leak campaign, this is something that you see in politics a lot, where candidate one never says anything bad about candidate two. But you hear sources that are saying bad things about them. So those sources are leaks from either from inside the campaign, maybe even from the person themselves. But they're off-the-record comments. It's the equivalent of someone walking up and whispering to your, hey, you know Tim likes pineapple on his pizza. And you're going, oh, gross. And then you tell somebody else, and word gets around. All of a sudden, Tim is something of a pizza party pariah. No one wants to deal with pineapple on their pizza. Or Tim. So Ford kind of did this with their campaign, except instead of doing a negative connotation, it was more like, hey, guys, check out how awesome the Edsel is. And they would leak these pictures and little articles and maybe some info about the car. And they would do it not to just some no-name, low-brand magazine. They weren't walking up to people's ears like I just used as an example. They were putting this stuff in Time and Life magazines. Biggest magazines of the day. Remember, people read magazines all the time. There was no internet. Magazines were your internet. So that went on for two years. They would do this. They would do that. Show a little bit here. Show a little bit there. About three months before E-Day, which was what they had named the actual product launch day, they had Newsweek publish a story on the Edsel with a cover photo that showed just the right front wheel and a couple inches of the bumper. It's a pretty cool photo, but it's not the type of photo that would elicit much excitement today. But think of who they're showing there in the 50s. They're showing the boomers. They're showing the older generations, the people that aren't around anymore. These are people that cars were still a really new thing to, people that got excited about cars. Part of the campaign for the Edsel took place a month after its launch. Very important part of the campaign. And this was the Edsel show. The Edsel show was a television show back then. Remember, only about three to six channels, something like that. And one of the most popular shows in America was the Ed Sullivan Show, which Ford was a sponsor for. Ford preempted the Ed Sullivan Show. If you don't know Ed Sullivan, this is the show where Elvis shook his hips and caused women to pass out. It's the show where the Beatles made their first American appearance. It is the show where the Doors got banned from network television. And it's the show that has been parodied most of Gen Xers' lives. We all know what it is. Anyone younger than us might not know, but this was a true cultural milestone, the Ed Sullivan Show. And Ford said, you know what, Ed? 
take the night off. We're going to do something else. We're doing, we're going to blow some people's socks off. And since I'm a bit of a television production nerd, I'm going to take you through some of the things they did here. Now the Edsel show was groundbreaking, not because they treat it like some sham wow infomercial, but because they treat it like a big deal. One of the things they did is a tactic that is still used today. They broadcast it live on the East Coast and through parts of the Midwest, then did a live tape delay broadcast in the West. This is important for a few reasons. This means they were able to control what time it aired. They wanted to make sure it aired at peak viewing time in the East Coast and the West Coast. No shows had ever done this before. At least no live shows had ever done this before. Another thing that made it a big deal, who they got, who they brought in, who they had on the show. Now, it starred Bing Crosby, who many of you might know from your grandparents' favorite Christmas carols, albums, and movies. Other than Bing Crosby, though, it featured Frank Sinatra, Old Blue Eyes himself, Louis Armstrong, Rosemary Clooney, whose last name you might recognize, yes, that Clooney, and there was a mystery guest. The mystery guest was the second biggest comedian in America. And I say second biggest because I'm partial to Johnny Carson and The Tonight Show. Probably the biggest. His name's Bob Hope. If you don't know who Bob Hope was, ask anyone that served in the military prior to 1993. They'll know who he was. Big show, big names, brand new type of broadcast. The whole thing was produced by Gonzaga University to one, keep costs down, and two, as a favor, because they wanted to get some people some experience on how to do a broadcast. This thing was huge. It was credited later as Ben Crosby's breakthrough into television, something he'd been trying to do for a while. He'd never really made that transition from like radio movie onto TV, and this did it for him. The show also won a Look Magazine TV award for best musical show and was nominated for an Emmy as the best single program of the year. By single program, they mean thing that airs only once. It lost to something called Playhouse 90, which was an anthology series. Think of Black Mirror or The Twilight Zone, something where the story changes week to week. So this was a big deal. It was a big show. It got people excited. Keep in mind, it aired a month after the Edsel launch, which is a little bit unfortunate because the Edsel launch did not go great. You see, as part of the launch, they had this great idea. They had 75 cars that were to be given to journalists throughout the U.S. to drive from plants to dealerships. So they wanted to get test Edsels from the plant to the dealership, and they thought a great way to do this and a great way to spread publicity was to have the journalists drive them because the journalists are the ones that write it up. It sounds like a great idea, except that only 68 of those 75 cars were able to be used. You see, they put those cars through about two months of testing, and that two-month testing showed that seven of those cars would not be usable, period. Couldn't run did not work at all. And those seven vehicles ended up with an average repair cost of $10,000 a piece, which is over twice what the Edsel cost. So repairing each of those vehicles, just getting to a point where they felt comfortable letting someone drive it, cost twice what the vehicle actually cost. And in fact, the shoddy condition of Edsel's didn't stop there. Most people that had an Edsel reported having major failures. Let's move on. What happened after this launch? Kind of a disastrous launch, but people were still excited, right? 
people still had that really cool campaign out there that had been done, that had gotten expectations high. The car launched in 1957, September 1957. By the end of 1957, which September to the end, not all that long, sales fell by a third. Fall of 57 saw all automobile sales dip. Mercury sales had dropped 48%. Dodge was off 47%. Buick was off 33%. And Pontiac was off 28%. So you're seeing effects of an auto recession. We have shoddy cars, cars that fall apart. We have a campaign which did a great job, but a project that wasn't great. And we're doing this during a time in which automobile sales are dropping. And in fact, Time Magazine stated, the flaw in all the research was that by 1957, when Edsel appeared, the bloom was gone from the medium-priced field. And a new boom was starting in the compact field, an area that Edsel research had overlooked completely. Now, I also want to add in here, the Edsel was supposed to be a stopgap, something for the medium-income family in between the Ford and the Mercury. Problem was that the most expensive Ford and the cheapest Mercury only saw a price gap of right around $100. So where does the Edsel fit in? Is it as good as a Mercury? Is it less good than a Mercury? Is it better than the Ford? People were confused. It was a confusing ploy. But there's more. It wasn't just a confusing ploy. It wasn't just a bad time to launch a shoddy car. It also looked bad. The Edsel, I think, looks kind of cool. But I think it looks kind of cool and kind of a cheeky, what the past thought the future would look like type car. Time Magazine described the grill as looking like an Oldsmobile sucking a lemon. If you go out and you look up a picture of the Edsel, you're going to know exactly what they're talking about. With all of this happening at the same time, with the successful campaign that built expectations and then the car that underdelivered, what happened? Well, the Edsel ended up being in production for two years. After 10 years in development in $250 million in 1940s money committed to this thing, and you only get two years of production. You have the really good hype machine build, and then you have the underperforming, kind of ugly car. The car had an impact. People remember it. It's a collectible item now. People are excited about it. But it was actually a complete disaster from a production standpoint, and there's not much any PR campaign can do for that. The rule of thumb is to underpromise and overdeliver. This is a case where it was impossible to overdeliver because the product was simply bad. That's not to say they didn't try to save it because they really did try to save things. I want to point out there's a website I found after I did most of the writing for this podcast where they went through the complete history of the Edsel. It's called Red X, and you can find it at redx.com, and they have a blog. And the post is tracking the rise and fall of the Edsel. And they go through and they pull all the newspaper articles about the Edsel, and they have them all together. It's a very cool resource. One of the things they point out is at some point after the Edsel sales were not where they should have been, someone came up with the idea to go ahead and use their show, Wagon Train. And by there, I mean Ford's show, Wagon Train to try to promote the Edsel. So what they did was they had one of the actors come out and tell all these kids, you see this beautiful white pony? Well, you can have one too if you get your parents to come in and test drive an Edsel. So they create a contest where people that test drove the Edsel 
were put in a raffle to possibly win a pony. And you can imagine the type of headache this caused, not only for Ford, but for the dealerships and for a lot of parents, I'm sure. As something of a postscript to how disastrous this vehicle was, I am going to read you an excerpt from Rosemary Clooney's biography. What I'm about to read is her recalling an incident that happened the afternoon of the Edsel Show's telecast. Once again, these are her words, so it's a direct quote. The show was built around the newest Ford offering, the 1958 Edsel, a new vista of motoring pleasure unlike any other car you've ever seen. The only Edsel I ever saw was the one they gave me to drive while I was rehearsing. I came out of the CBS building, up those little steps to the street where my purple Edsel was waiting, like the Normandy in dry dock. Mr. Ford was right behind me, heading for his Edsel. I opened the door of my car and the handle came off. I turned to him, holding it out. About your car, dot, dot, dot. Everyone, that is it for this return episode of Fails and Fixins. My thanks to you guys for sitting through and listening to all this. I hope you got something informative and you've learned enough to not repeat history's mistakes. We'll be back in a week. We have a few more episodes on the docket that we're going to get out here before we take another break and then come back with more episodes. It's just the way things are going to be now. So I will see you next time when I come at you with another fail and another fix.